Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 31 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. Well, you may not like him, but Yuval Noah Harari sure does speak some valuable truth when he says things like, We tell ourselves stories, by which he means stories that describe, explain, or promote ideas about existence that may or may not be true. You've all said that these kind of stories become the emotional glue that binds together the unthinking, uncritical, self-indulgent minds of the people of the world. People who know what they like and like what they want, but they do not know very much about how the things they like and the things they want come about existing. The Apostle John called these stories we tell ourselves the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. People become conditioned to see the world in a certain way and they learn to interpret worldly statements by worldly people in a certain way, and they perceive worldly events in a certain way. And those ways are the stories we tell ourselves. Television and the Internet help us out with those stories by broadcasting programs. These electronic stories program our minds to perceive and understand the events of the world in a certain way. Take, for example, a recent headline. It reads, Idiocracy. Germany finally admits that without energy, no economy can run. What a shock! The article reads, Peter Adrian, head of the Association of German Chambers of Industry and Commerce, or DIHK, is reportedly coming to grips with the fact that Germany will collapse without more Russian energy. More and more companies are telling us that they no longer have a supply contract for electricity or gas at all, Adrian told RND newspaper. The tap is turned off in the truest sense of the word, but without energy, no economy can run, end quote. The story everyone likes is the one that says we can have our cake and eat it too, or in this case, we can have our fuel and despise it too. I used to think that this idea, that energy is necessary for survival, it was a self-evident truth, like the self-evident truth that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. But you've all taught me this is not the case. As with this strange idea of human rights, it was just a story, I told myself. In the same way, we tell ourselves all kinds of stories about the happy economic world that we live in. Apparently, a great many people have no real concept of the direct relationship between abundant energy resources and the ability of said people to actually survive and stay alive, much less accumulate all the material things that they lust over. Too many people, it seems, think that the lustful things they want produce themselves, and magically appear on the store shelves whenever they lust over them. Lustful things like food, clothing, heat in the winter, electricity, air conditioning in the summer, automobiles, travel, vacations, that little jar of almonds sitting on my desk, diapers, cell phones, the internet, toilet paper, all kinds of lustful things just magically appear. The article continues. One such company is Hackle, a toilet paper company that recently filed for bankruptcy, citing unsustainable energy and material costs. The steel and non-ferrous metals industries are also on the verge of a collapse, requiring cheap and abundant natural gas in order to maintain production. 
So when the S hits the F and the toilet paper runs out, then people will have a nirvana moment. Europeans have been dutifully building windmills and sprouting solar panels all over Europe for some time now, just like we do now here in America, and they seem to think these globalist symbols of progressivism are going to replace carbon fuels. What their stories leave out is that all of these newfangled electrical generating devices require carbon-based fuels to be constructed, erected, and maintained. They are not told that the energy they generate has to be transmitted to the recipients of the energy through wire systems that are built with fossil fuels so that consumers can use the energy to power an abundance of products that were made from fossil fuels, and so they can operate machinery that was created from fossil fuels and that is run predominantly on fossil fuels. Let's take, for example, your ability to drive down to the supermarket to buy, at least for the time being, a little bag of bagels and cream cheese. I assume you would utilize a steel and plastic automobile that rides on tires to go fetch the bagels. The steel in that automobile comes from ores that have to be blasted from the earth, ground to dust, separated from slag, transported to kilns, melted at super high temperatures, cooled into blocks, transported to manufacturers, remelted and formed or extruded into parts which are then treated coated and assembled into the metal components of your car, all using vast amounts of energy produced almost exclusively by carbon fuels. The synthetic plastic, foam, and rubber that's all throughout your car and its tires are all made out of oil. Windmills don't make oil, although they use oil in order to keep turning. Solar panels don't make oil. If there is no oil, there will be no plastic, no foam, no rubber, and no car, or at least no car that you would want to drive to the supermarket in. And I assume you drive on paved roads that are pretty smooth. Well, maybe they're not perfectly smooth, but they're a lot smoother than a dirt road. Go take a trip to a country like Haiti and cruise around on its dirt roads for a few hours and see what it's like. All that pavement we get impatient for the government to spread on the roads comes from oil. Without oil, we're left just with concrete to make roads. We used to make roads out of concrete. We make concrete by blasting huge holes in the ground to get out limestone. Or sometimes we tear down mountains to get it. And making concrete is a kind of dirty process that takes, you guessed it, a lot of energy, mostly from fossil fuels. And of course, the concrete has to be spread to make a road, which requires an awful lot of steel, plastic, rubber, and things like that to get it from the plant to the road base. Without concrete, we are just down to hand-hewn cobblestones and shaped rock. The Romans made roads like this. They last a long time, but they take a huge number of slaves to make them cost-effectively, and they require more huge holes to be dug into the ground, and they're not particularly comfortable to drive on. But they sure do last. So just to go get your little bag of bagels requires an unbelievably long chain of requirements from production and distribution of raw materials, finished goods, transportation of the goods, energy consumption at every stage, and distribution through stores, and maybe even a bagel truck. None of this stuff happens just because. None of it magically appears. All of it can disappear in practically an instant. It just requires us to shut down our energy supplies. No energy, no cars, no stores, and no bagels. And there won't be any heat for your home, or electricity for your home, or natural gas for your home. You won't be able to earn money to pay your bills, and you won't get government checks, pension checks, entitlement checks, or even investment income, because nothing gets produced when there is no energy. The government can print all the fiat currency it wants until it runs out of paper, ink, and electricity to run the equipment. 
But if there's nothing to buy, there is nothing to use the fiat currency on. How long will our grocery stores sell bagels when their power costs triple, quadruple, or quintuple? The article continues. The Federation of German Industries conducted an analysis recently which found that energy cost inflation is a major challenge for 58% of German companies, while 34% say what happens next will determine their survival. Now, that's a very polite way of saying the economy is about to be destroyed. Take a drive down the road this Saturday or pay attention when you next drive to your workplace. Imagine that two out of every three businesses you go by will have serious trouble paying their bills just because of the energy costs, or will have trouble getting their supplies because of all the problems that face their suppliers. Then imagine every third business folding, going out of business for good. All the people who work there are out of work. The article continues. In the trades, a wave of insolvencies is rolling toward us because of the energy crisis, says Hans-Peter Wolfser. Uh, Wolfser? Yeah, I think that's how it's said. President of the Central Association of German Crafts. Every day we receive emergency calls from companies that are about to stop production because they can no longer pay the enormously increased energy bills. America may still be standing for now, but the economic engine of Europe is about to run down. And when it does, our engine will not be far behind. Mind you, all of this is completely unnecessary. This is deliberately created to produce exactly the conditions that now exist. There is no rational reason for Europe in general, and Germany in particular, to have started a war with Russia, which is what led, in large part, to their current crisis. Even after following their instructions from the New World Order and siding with Ukraine against Russia, there was no rational reason for Germany to refuse to pay Russia in rubles to buy their natural gas, which is the supplier of most natural gas to Germany and the rest of Europe. Their refusal to pay in the currency that the seller was willing to accept led Russia to shut down the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, and that led, in just days, to a European economy in freefall. It takes a bit of time for an economic engine to crash and burn because there is a lot of momentum to a massive economy, but it will fall if the blood supply is cut off, and that blood supply is carbon-based fuel. Russia is not the only source of desperately needed natural gas in Europe, and the Europeans are frantically buying all of the natural gas they can from alternative sources. The government of America, for example, is making sure that we sell them a lot of gas, even as our politicians demonize carbon fuel production and use. Go figure. Meanwhile, the European windmills continue to turn, and the Great Fall has only begun. It's very hard for people to grasp that the leaders of a nation, particularly their own nation, want their society to be destroyed. We've been conditioned, um, programmed, to think of government as a benevolent entity which is here to help us, and its leaders are heroes who are working tirelessly to protect us from harmful things. This conditioning has been wildly successful, because for decades, that's how the government seemed to behave. But, as you've all pointed out, it was just a story, because any government that truly had the best interest of its citizens in mind would not bankrupt the nation in endless debt spending, exempt its leaders from its own rules, produce deadly weapons of mass destruction that threaten human existence, and pass rules and laws that shield government activities and individuals from inspection by the public, to name just a few abuses and usurpations we are routinely subjected to. Our founders, who lived at a time that preceded mass media programming, realized something profound about government. 
they realized that every government that the world had ever produced existed for two very simple and fundamental reasons. They existed to consolidate and centralize power over others, and they existed to glorify and exalt their rulers. They did not exist ever to promote the common welfare. If the purpose of all governments throughout all time has been to centralize power and glorify their rulers, which is the essence of tyranny, then there must be something fundamental to governance that leads inevitably to that end. Otherwise, governments would not always decay into tyranny. Therefore, there must be something fundamental about governing that always leads to tyranny. There are two things, actually. The first is sin, which is built into our physical structure, our bodies. And the second is Satan, who rules the world by tempting people to sin. The brilliance of our founders was that they realized the only way to prevent tyranny and establish a government that would promote the general welfare was to limit the power and authority of government in a way that could not be easily undone. They were smart enough to know that there is no fail-safe way to stop a government from devolving into tyranny, but they came up with some very creative ways of slowing it down. And in the inevitable event that it did devolve into tyranny, they established the legal and moral principle to tear it down again and the means by which the tearing down could be accomplished. It's unfortunate, then, that very few people have historically had any desire to implement those ideas or even understand them. Those ideas are enshrined in two amendments to our Constitution. The most important amendment that could have protected us from governmental overreach and abuse of power is barely even recognized by the majority of Americans. Most people think the First Amendment or the Second Amendment is the most important one, but it isn't. It's the Tenth Amendment, and it's short and succinct. It reads, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The state governments give the federal government its authority, and by design, they only give it very limited and delegated authority. The federal government was not supposed to have any powers that are not specifically spelled out in the Constitution by the states. If that amendment were followed, the federal government would not be able to get anything done in most areas of our lives, which is the whole point of the amendment. As that is not acceptable to any ruler at any level, Almost from the very beginning of the nation, the Tenth Amendment was generally ignored, thereby opening the door for tyranny to establish itself gradually through incremental encroachment of government power into what is now every facet of our lives. I'm not sure the founders really expected the Tenth Amendment to work because they knew that tyrants could not be held at bay forever, so they had a fallback plan when the primary plan inevitably failed. That fallback plan is the Second Amendment. Unfortunately, it took less than a century for the power and principles of the Second Amendment to be crushed beneath the budding boot of tyranny. Shortly after the Revolution, Americans got soft and squishy in their growing wealth and thereby craved the sin of security over the rigors of liberty, and that is all it would take to derail the real purpose of the Second Amendment. In Matthew 19, 21-22, Jesus had some advice for a rich young ruler who came seeking salvation. Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young ruler heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The love of money, says Paul in 1 Timothy 6.9, is the root of all sorts of evil. 
Money, which just stands for wealth, produces the sin of greed, and we are the wealthiest and greediest society that has ever existed when it comes to the average person. No matter how little we have, human nature does not want to risk losing it, which is why the fail-safe plan of the founders was also doomed to fail. That plan reads, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to keep the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. All of these words are important, but the most important word is the term militia. The founders were concerned that a central government would eventually form a standing army, and they felt that a standing army would be the biggest threat to freedom and liberty a people could face. Today, we can understand the concept of a standing army in the context of not just our military forces, but the vast police state that's being constructed by the federal government. There are no less than 50 federal agencies that are heavily armed and have police powers. The federal government is currently hiring 85,000 new armed IRS agents who, as part of their application, must agree that they're willing to use deadly force in the line of duty. I can't think of a single legitimate reason for tax collection auditors to be armed, much less take an oath that they will use deadly force against American citizens to fulfill whatever task their masters assign. In a Forbes magazine issue in 2017, which was before there were jackboot media controls in place, they ran an article dated October 20th, 2017, entitled, Why Are Federal Bureaucrats Buying Guns and Ammo? This is how the article started out evaluating Obama-era gun purchases. For the 70,000 officers at Homeland Security and the 40,000 officers within the Department of Justice, Proper training and equipment are vital to their daily law enforcement duties. So in 2017, there were only 70,000 armed officers at the entire Department of Homeland Security. If that's the case, why do we need 85,000 armed IRS agents today, just a small agency? The article goes on. Over a nearly two-year period, the last years of the Obama administration, fiscal year 2015 and 16, these law enforcement agencies spent $138 million on new guns and ammunition. What's curious, however, is that traditionally administrative agencies spent more than $20 million. Four notable examples. The 2,300 special agents at the Eternal Revenue Service, uh, they want 85000 now, are allowed to carry AR-15s, you know, assault weapons, P-90 tactical rifles, and other heavy weaponry. Recently, the IRS armed up with $1.2 million in new ammunition. This was in addition to the $11 million procurement of guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment procured between 2006 and 2014. So in 2016, the IRS already had 2,300 special agents armed with assault weapons, tactical rifles, and other military gear. Who knew? Number two, the Small Business Administration spent tens of thousands of taxpayer dollars to load its gun locker with Glocks last year. The Small Business Administration wasn't alone. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service modified their Glocks with silencers. Yes, silencers are an integral part of being a law enforcement officer with the Fish and Wildlife Service. I guess they don't want to disturb the ducks when they take us down. Number three. The Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA, has a relatively new police force. 
1996, the VA had zero employees with arrest and firearm authority. Today, the VA has 3,700 officers armed with millions of dollars worth of guns and ammunition, including AR-15s, SIG Sauer handguns, and semi-automatic pistols. Veterans Affairs is a bureau that was originally designed to help veterans obtain certain benefits like health care and housing. But today, they are armed and ready to be unleashed on... Who? Number four. Meanwhile, Department of Health and Human Services, HHS agents, carry the same sophisticated weapons platforms used by our special forces military warriors. The HHS gun locker is housed in a new National Training Operations Center, a facility at an undisclosed location within the D.C. Beltway. For the complete guide to all things weaponized in the federal government, go to OpenTheBooks.com and review the reports titled The Militarization of America, Open the Books Oversight Report. Here are just a few of its findings for fiscal years 2006 to 2014, almost a decade ago. 67 non-military federal agencies spent $1.48 billion on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. Non-military federal agencies. Traditional law enforcement agencies spent $1.14 billion, while administrative or general agencies spent $335 million. Administrative agencies, including the FDA, Small Business Administration, Smithsonian Institution, Social Security Administration, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, United States Mint, Department of Education, Bureau of Engraving and Printing, National Institute of Standards and Technology, and many other agencies purchased guns, ammo, and military-style equipment. The Environmental Protection Agency spent $3.1 million on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. The EPA spent $715 million on its criminal enforcement divisions from fiscal year 2005 to 2016. The Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service spent $4.77 million purchasing shotguns, 308 caliber rifles, night vision goggles, propane cannons, liquid explosives, pyro supplies, buckshot, LP gas cannons, drones, remote-controlled helicopters, thermal cameras, military waterproof thermal infrared scopes, and more. What we're seeing is the development of a private army that is being constructed in our faces for reasons undisclosed to us. Hitler had his brown shirts and the SS and the Gestapo, and we have our alphabet soup of federal agencies that are armed to the teeth, ready to become something far more sinister when the moment is right. This is what the founders feared, because a government with a standing army can turn those forces loose on the people to control and subjugate them at their will. We would like to think that our courts are the fail-safe system to prevent it, but governmental courts have historically caved to the tyrants when faced with covert or overt threats to their persons, to the individuals. There's no reason to think that our Ivy League lawyers who wear the robes are going to be paragons of bravery and virtue who will stand for the little guy, especially when some of them have already been bought and paid for by activist entities. The founders did not rely on the court system to protect freedom. They relied on the principle that free people should be armed and should maintain their own independent military culture through armed militias, which can train and drill regularly under separate authorities that are tied only to their communities for the defense of their communities. The militia authorities were to work with the sheriffs, 
who are the constitutionally appointed guardians of independent, sovereign, free people, and they were to be armed with equivalent weapons to the government. In that context, you can understand why government tyrants were not very warm to this idea. Communities protected by this kind of independent militia are not easily intimidated and controlled by a central governing authority. If the central governing authority got out of control, the militias could coordinate their activities to resist the extension of tyranny into their areas of private and community life. The existence of militias was an existential threat to absolute government power, and as a result, the federal government worked steadily to eliminate independent militias and subordinate the organizations to the federal government's authority. The Civil War was the perfect opportunity to destroy the independent militias, and they did not survive the war, but were absorbed into the regular army. Today, we should remember that the Second Amendment was not about keeping and bearing hunting rifles. It was not about protecting personal property. It was not about our right to shoot skeets. It was about arming militias and our collective responsibility as free citizens to stand and defend our local communities through the activities of the militias. Unfortunately, that idea died out a very long time ago. Any resemblance of modern militias to this idea of the founders is strictly coincidental. No militia stands in the way of today's wannabe tyrants. They have a door standing wide open with no one standing remotely nearby to close it. These tyrants operate on a different set of principles and beliefs than most of us, some of which were exposed in past episodes. But even with the benefit of those exposures, it's still hard to grasp the magnitude of the evil that lives not only among us, but over us in the minds of these psychopathic tyrants and despots and their controlled progeny who occupy every corner of governance from federal down to community. And they have a plan that they are executing on behalf of people we do not know and have not elected. That plan involves a lot of death, a ton of destruction, and the elimination of the United States as an independent political entity. These plotters have even enlisted the help of their victims in carrying off this victory. It's a kind of mass suicide. Suicide is the killing of oneself. It can be deliberate and intentional, or it can be careless and unintentional through self-imposed ignorance of action. In other words, we should have enough information to make a decision to live, but instead we ignore the information and choose the path that leads inevitably to death. It's kind of like a choice about God. We can choose the path that leads to life, which lies with Jesus Christ, or we can choose the path that leads to death, which is permanent separation from God, and that is to reject Christ. Anyone who has the information about Christ available to them has the choice to live, yet many people still choose not to side with Christ. It reminds me of the phrase that Isaiah used when he described the terrible judgments that God rained down on the Israelites because they had the Word of God, were the guardians of the Word of God, and experienced the Word of God firsthand, Yet, in just a few short generations, they forgot who they were and sought new, eclectic, diverse gods to worship, thereby angering the real God and bringing judgment down on themselves. Isaiah concluded each of these judgments of God with the ominous phrase, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is still stretched out. Despite repeated warnings, the Israelites did not learn what was bad for them, and neither do we learn what's bad for us, despite repeated warnings of the approaching judgment. 
One of the many lessons of the Bible that can be somewhat confusing to some Christians is the idea that God is not just a God of individuals. He's also a God of collectives. Relationship with God is not just about us individually, but it's also about our group relationships in organizations such as the church and government. Like it or not, God punishes nations for the sins of their leaders, as undemocratic and unfair as that may seem to us. Punishment is not arbitrary, and it's not immediate, as God warns the nation through a series of lesser punishments that are intended to induce the leaders and the people to reform and turn back to God. But the history of the world is that people are stiff-necked, and we don't generally respond well to correction. And when we do respond, we don't always stay corrected. I know I can struggle with that on an individual basis, and nations can certainly struggle with that on a national basis. In America and other Western nations, our leaders are openly defiant of God and contemptuous towards our own people. They are committing national suicide, and most of us are going along with it because we are oblivious to what they are doing or are too terrified to do anything about it, like the Germans who went along with whatever the brown shirts, SS, and Gestapo told them to do. If we do the same thing, it makes us complicit in our own suicide, since national suicide is the goal. It really isn't that hard to see that this is their goal. Here is another news clip dated September 15, 2022. A few days ago, the Biden White House press briefing room published a new executive order titled Executive Order on Advancing Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Innovation for a Sustainable, Safe, and Secure American Bioeconomy. The executive order states the following. For biotechnology and biomanufacturing to help us achieve our societal goals. <laughs> Did you know we had societal goals? The United States needs to invest in foundational scientific capabilities. We need to develop genetic engineering technologies and techniques to be able to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way in which we write software and program computers. Unlock the power of biological data, including through computing tools and artificial intelligence, and advance the science of scale-up production while reducing the obstacles for commercialization so that innovative technologies and products can reach markets faster. If you've been listening to this podcast for the past few episodes, you know what this carefully crafted language means. They are paving the way for companies, in cooperation with the government, to program human cells, reconfigure what it means to be a human being, and capture the organism that was formerly known as man. They want to unleash artificial intelligence on humanity, a technology that is so inherently dangerous that even Elon Musk has labeled it an existential threat to humanity, which is ironic given his company is leading the charge to develop fully functioning AI. Those brief example sentences from this very long and tediously written executive order confirm all the conspiracy theories that claim the government and industry are actively seeking to hack human DNA and take control of people. The government, in conjunction with the international corporations, are not only openly changing what it means to be human, they are actively destroying what it means to be a country. It really isn't hard to even understand this. And the fastest way that they can take down an industrialized country is to destroy its energy supply. 
United Nations Agenda 2050 calls for the elimination of all fossil fuels by 2050 and the elimination of over half of all fossil fuels by 2030. Now let me clarify what that means. The UN agenda applies primarily to Western industrialized nations. Countries like China and Russia have no intention of abandoning anything. United Nations Agenda 2050 claims that we have a climate crisis so threatening to humanity that we have to radically reduce human population, cut carbon emissions to zero, stop most farming activity, eliminate meat from our diet, except for insects, those are okay, and agree to sustainability goals that are so onerous that they will ensure the complete destruction of human society. Because this sounds like a great idea to the government of California, it has decided there will be no internal combustion engines in the state by 2035. Because this sounds like a great idea to the government of the United States, it has decided to pay farmers to stop growing food in the middle of a worldwide food shortage. Because this sounds like a great idea to the government of the United States, the government has killed tens of thousands of cattle, hundreds of thousands of pigs, and millions of chickens over the threat of a supposed virus that has harmed no one and resulted in almost no livestock deaths other than the ones the government inflicts on the farmers. And Agenda 2050 is why NATO governments are so eager to start a war with Russia. Let's listen to a clip of Mike Adams interviewing Dave Hodges on this topic. His website is thecommonsenseshow.com. The topic today is, well, we're going to start with Europe, Ukraine, Russia. Look, we're going to cover a lot of topics, but Dave, it's been a long time, probably too long since we talked. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you back on. Well, it's great to be back on, Mike. Thanks. Absolutely. I know you talk to a lot of people. you got a lot of military contacts, State Department contacts. You are watching the situation very closely. You and I have talked previously about the risk of China launching an actual invasion of the United States, which is still in the works. But what is on your radar right now as the most immediate risk to Americans? Well, I want to start with what it isn't, because I think it really uh, identifies what it is. The uh, European leaders appear to be willing to sacrifice millions of lives on the altar of climate change with what they're doing with energy. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's gonna matter because what's coming to Europe could potentially be so devastating that whether you can heat your home or cook food is the least of your worries. They could be involved in an all out war. And I don't know how far this is gonna go. I, I wanna be really clear though, what I've been told. I've been told the missiles that uh, drove Russia back and forced them into a strategic withdrawal and led to a successful counteroffensive by Ukraine, they are long range missiles and they're not being fired from inside Ukraine. Some of them have been fired from neighboring nations and that is a game changer because now you have a direct attack from one NATO nation upon Russia and Putin has to respond. He doesn't have a choice. These are American missiles supplied by the most popular administration ever to occupy the Oval Office, with training provided by American military forces. It's a twofer. The missiles are used to provoke Putin to launch an all-out war against the West, while at the same time, the use of the missiles depletes our own arsenal of weapons that we might need should we be attacked by a foreign power. It's not like we can just go out and get some missiles from the missile store. We can't get parts we need to assemble these missiles because some key parts come from China. You know, like computer chips? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, 
I just don't know how far Putin's going to go, how restrained he will be. And it's not just Russia we got to worry about. Let's say Russia pulls the plug and they decide to go all out. The neighboring nations are in danger of being invaded. Belarus may enter the fray and send their tanks into nearby countries. If Russia escalates and it looks like it's going to be a, a direct war, not a proxy war, between NATO and Russia, China is going to take advantage and make a move on Taiwan and possibly on Vietnam and possibly on shipping through the South China Sea. We would find ourselves in that scenario in just a rapid World War III, a truly global war in no time. Hours. This yeah. would take hours. So let me bring in a couple other things just to bring our audience up to speed here. Over the weekend, it has been rumored that Putin is about to declare officially war. Uh, probably against NATO, and that um, that war would, I mean, that declaration would cause NATO to have to respond with its own retaliation of, of a declaration, you know, against Russia, and then we would be truly in a world war at that point. Yeah, ships doing humanitarian aid in the, in the Black Sea would be vulnerable. Uh, civilian populations on border countries to Ukraine will be vulnerable. I agree with you. This is a huge game changer. And it, it, what's this mean for the United States? Well, for Russia to reach out and touch us, it has to go nuclear. But it won't come from inside of Russia. It'll come from their submarines. Yes, right. And, and that, that we're talking, you know, with coastal cities and about 80% of our populations on the coast, east and west, uh, you have about a three-minute window. Well, I talked to the... Uh, I talked to a high-ranking British officer, and I don't know if he wants to throw my name into this, but I talked to him on the phone about, oh, it was right around the time of the botched uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And he told me that the top brass in Britain have been telling their soldiers all along, get ready for war. Yes. Um, this, this is something that's well known. The Chinese have told their people, get ready for war. There's no question. But Mike, I think there's a third variable that I'd like to bring up here. I think these European leaders can be so reckless with the lives of their population, both with energy and coming into a winter and Putin's going to cut them off. And also with the aspect of being attacked, probably with tactical nuclear weapons. I think they can be so brazen to sacrifice their populations because they've made plans to survive and be out of harm's way. And I think this all goes back to the World Economic Forum. They want Western civilization destroyed. So it's not just me who sees ominous warning clouds on the horizon. Other people who pay attention to these things see the same problems looming. If we de-evolve into this massive civil conflict, uh, there's something called the Kigali Principles that Biden and John Kerry illegally signed us onto. It was a treaty not passed by the Senate in December of 2016. And basically it says to the UN, based on your say-so, health reasons, insurrection, civil war or war, you can bring your troops in. This is how you get Chinese soldiers on American soil. Nice. An invitation to bring in more armed border crossers, handcrafted and delivered by John Kerry, hero of the people. Well, in regard to the approaching end times, Jesus did say in Matthew 24, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The term nation is a word that means ethnicity. 
It means one people group will rise against other people groups, you know, like uh, minorities or, or uh, people of color rising against people of, I guess, not color or less color. The term kingdom is a political term for government, which means multiple governments will be fighting each other. It's kind of like they do in a world war, you know, where people fight each other. So Klaus Schwab and his World Economic Forum and all their globalist supporters around the world are working diligently to force the world to descend into chaos. That is how they're going to build back better. And you can't build back better until you destroy what already exists. Madonna modeled the idea in her 2012 Super Bowl appearance when she rolled out on a throne with a goat-horned headdress looking like a phoenix from Egypt. The phoenix is a favorite symbol of entertainers, Freemasons, and occultists because the Greek mythological figure is reborn from the fire and ashes of its earlier existence. It fits with the favorite talking points, such as out of chaos, order, and build back better. We are, after all, in the age of Aquarius, that period between now and 2050 when astrologers believe the Earth will experience a new age of higher consciousness and people will evolve to a higher reality through reason and technology. Gosh, that year 2050 keeps showing up everywhere, doesn't it? Well, there's a reason for that. But for now, let's wrap up with those prophecies that have so much bearing on the signs of the times. We've been exploring the unification of three prophetic lines of Scripture, one from Matthew 24 when Jesus is explicitly telling his disciples the signs of the end times, one from Revelation 2 when Jesus is writing to the churches in the end times, and one from Revelation 6, where Jesus is showing John some future events of the end times. Notice how frequently Jesus shows up in these prophecies. Could that be significant? These parallel scriptures are all there to provide Christians with some important insights and instructions in the lead-up to the end times, a period that Jesus expects us to recognize, and he doesn't expect us to recognize something that is obscure in scripture. So it's not obscure. It's clear if you know what you're reading. We are using Revelation 2 as the anchor text because it is the direct instruction to Christians in that time period. Starting in verse 8, I'm going to read starting in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The church here is not a specific church building or a body, so don't get hung up on that. It's the universal church in the lead-up to the end times. As before, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus starts out talking about works. Jesus is all about works. He doesn't start out talking about feelings. He's not interested in ideas. He has no desire to discuss spiritual development. He gets right to the point about works. I know your works, he said. So if he starts out with that statement for the second church in a row, I think we had better take it to mean that Jesus is serious about our works. He's not looking for passive, casual, occasional Sunday morning Christian followers. He's looking for workers. In addition to the works, he knows all about the church's tribulation and poverty. 
We can infer from this that the works of the church might have led to the tribulation and poverty it's experiencing. Tribulation means great suffering and difficulties. Poverty means lack of material goods. This is not a church that has an opulent building decked out in statues and outfitted with gilded furniture. These are Christians who may not even have a building to go to, but are doing their best job that they can under great duress. Jesus goes on to say, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And here is a big clue as to who is causing all of the church's distress, troubles, and impoverishment. The traditional interpretation is that these are just regular Jews who have rejected Jesus in their hearts and are seeking salvation through their own works and rituals. After all, Paul said, a true Jew is a Jew in the heart. But that interpretation makes no sense in the context of this passage as well as the parallel passages. God usually says what he means and means what he says. He's not in the habit of spiritualizing ideas to make them have some mysterious and flexible meaning that can fit whatever creative interpretation we fancy. He's usually literal. In this case, these are people who are blaspheming God. Jews, for all their problems, do not blaspheme God. And the blasphemy is saying they are Jews, the people of God. Jews, not spiritual people, not Christians. Jews are an ethnic group selected by God to bring the oracles to the world. These people claim they are Jews, ethnic Jews, but they are not. That is the big clue to who these people really are. Instead of being Jews, they are actually a synagogue of Satan. And what's that? It's a group of people who worship Satan. In other words, they are Satanists. That is who these people are, but they pass themselves off as Jews. So if we can identify a group of people who claim to be Jews, but are actually practicing Satanists, we will have identified the group of people who will be severely persecuting the church during this time. And how will they persecute them? By having their henchmen, probably government agents, throw some of these good Christians into prison, test them, which probably means interrogate and torture them, and in the end, kill many of them because it says in the scripture, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And Jesus concludes with another promise to these persecuted people when he says, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, it does not explain what overcoming looks like, but we know from later in scripture what the second death looks like. That's the final judgment of souls at which some souls will be permanently separated from the presence of God and the good things that come from God. That is the second death. So something happens here that unleashes government persecutors on this group of people leading up to the Great Tribulation end time period. Now skipping over to Matthew 24, the parallel passage is verse 6. It reads, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place but the end is not yet. So during the same period when these persecutions take place, there will be widespread rumors of wars and also actual wars. Well, that could be any time, but presumably these wars will be somehow connected to the mystery Jews who say they are Jews but are not, which is another clue. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 6, and let's read verses 3 and 4, the parallel passages in this section of Scripture. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, 
and that peoples should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Recall that in the previous horse judgment there was a white horse, and he who rode on it had a bow, which is a weapon of indirect warfare wielded at a distance. He wielded it successfully. Now he was a rider on a horse, which symbolizes empowerment by a governing authority or a government authority, and it was white, which symbolizes his passing himself off as a good guy. But he wielded a weapon against those who supported him. Now in the next judgment, we have a red horse, red symbolizing violence and death. And this time, the rider is wielding a great sword, which is a weapon wielded at close range. He is no longer sitting far off. These are government officials who get right in the face of the people they are attacking. And what are these government officials doing? They are taking peace from the earth and encouraging people to kill or attack one another. Government agents, like armed police of alphabet soup agencies, who are hired and armed to do something not quite identified at their hiring. These are the same kind of government agents that are being hired, trained, and armed in countries all over the world today. And who are they most interested in persecuting? The real churches. They want the Christians who stand for something, like freedom, liberty, and justice, for example, and they want them badly. True justice, not just the fake justice that must be prefaced with an adjective, is the enemy. All this is designed and implemented by these mystery people who call themselves Jews, but are not, people who lie and who are actually a synagogue of Satan. Do you wonder who these people may be? We'll ponder that for the next time. But as a special treat to wrap up this podcast, we're going to listen to a short clip from the SGT report that pretty much sums up exactly how this administration looks at America and our world. It is an interview with General Mike Flynn and Clay Clark, but it is the Clay Clark portion that I want to end with. So let's listen to it. No person should believe for a second that Donald Trump or any of us, anybody that is in a, any kind of, you know, or, or, has, or has been in a position of authority would allow our country to be destroyed the way that it is being destroyed by a bunch of Marxist socialists, okay? All you have to do is look at some of the social media postings of some of these people that are in our government, that are in a, that are in appointed or, or Senate confirmed positions working for this administration. They are destroying and they are working to destroy the country. Hey friends, Sean from SGT Report here. That was General Mike Flynn. He and Clay Clark joined me in this roundtable discussion about the future of our republic. Digital soldiers, one and all, that is one of the topics of our conversation today, and I could not be more gratified, pleased, and honored to have on the line United States National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, General Michael Flynn, and my longtime friend Clay Clark. First, the good general, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for having us on. Hey, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure. I've been waiting to talk to you for a very, very long time. And Clay Clark, thanks for helping arrange this, my friend. I really appreciate you, and, and you were one of the first people kicked off of YouTube. So we, we, we want to make sure we get the truth out to your loyal listeners who followed you onto the different platforms. Well, you're a good man, and I just want to rewind time in a second to say that I was wrong about what happened after the stolen election regarding national security. We'll get to that in a second. But first, let me show you, gentlemen, something that I think really captures and conveys the heart and soul of the Biden administration. Meet our Satanist monkeypox czar. 
You can't make this stuff up. Look what the man is wearing. I think this is just another eclectic hire. Here's some others by this administration, which aptly conveys their contempt for the American people and to whom their loyalties, I think, lie with, which I don't know, generally might be overstating it. The father of lies. Clay, do you want to comment on that? Well, in the Bible, it talks about, um, and Isaiah specifically, it talks about how there, there would be a time that would come when uh, people would call good evil and evil good. You know, Isaiah 520. I'll just read it to you. It says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, and put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So if you look at this, this we'll call him gentleman. Um, it, it's one thing to, um, you know, go against God's laws. We'll, we'll call it that. But the second thing is to celebrate a satanic uh, commitment. So if you think about what that means, I mean, when we go to the Reawaken America tour, you know, General Flynn might wear a shirt that says local action, national impact, or I might wear a shirt that states America first or something. This guy literally wakes up and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put on a uh, satanic uh, themed uh, outfit here with the leather in the shape of uh, the satanic symbols. And then I'm going to go to a party and have my friend wear uh, what appears to be a dog muzzle. And uh, we're going to run around and do that for a while. Uh, and then I'm going to get tattoos on my body, which appear to be permanent. And I'm going to get those on my body because I just want everyone to know if there's any confusion. I just want to get it out there. I want people to know that I'm 100 percent committed and I have pledged my allegiance to to Satan. And then Joe Biden or his advisors have said, you know what? There's a lot of really qualified people to be the monkeypox czar. I mean, we've got a big list. I mean, we've got sharp people from all across the country, black people, white people, Asian people, men, women, Christians, Mormons, Catholics, Buddhists. But you know what? We like the guy with the Satan theme with the whole Satan leather outfit uh, and the dog and the guy with the dog face. Yeah. And, and you go. Yeah. We want the guy with the one with the photo. Yeah. The guy with that, that guy. Yeah. Let's get that guy. So you got to think about it. I mean, this is very intentional. So all I could say is they are intentionally celebrating Satan. America is now being run by people who are openly satanic and proud of it. There is a reason that Revelation says that Christians are going to experience special attention in the coming end time age. It's because we're going to have Satanists to contend with. Fortunately, there are still some people around who are fighting for God and righteousness, so don't give up all hope. Nevertheless, if this is the end time age, the Bible is very clear about how things have to go down. Still, there's sunlight at the end of the tunnel because that's where Jesus Christ stands and he is going to rule forevermore on earth from Jerusalem. Okay, there's a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming as well, but let's not get bogged down in the details of that right now. The point is that if we are on his team, our long-term outcome is as good and pleasant as it can get, and it is certain and sure. So if you are not on his team, get on his team. What in the world are you waiting for? If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face, a 5e star, or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Encourage me to print t-shirts that I can sell to advertise this podcast and raise some money to pay for all this expensive equipment, and maybe even a website that the evil people can crush beneath their electronic boot. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Bandora. 
And I'm told we are also now on Samsung Podcasts and Podchaser. Ooh, we're just exploding across the internet. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, look up into the night sky and try to figure out when Aquarius arrives. If you see something, say something. Say something.